So Money episode 84, Ask Farnoosh. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome, welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Happy weekend, Sunday, April 5th, 2015. Happy Easter, Passover. Hope you're enjoying your weekend with your family and your friends. I'm looking forward to answering your questions today. Lots and lots of inquiries coming through the SoMoneyPodcast.com website, and I'm loving hearing from all of you. Thank you so much for your, uh, for your support. Let's start now with a question from... Ram. Ram says, I am married and I have two kids, ages eight and three. I haven't saved for any amount of their education. I heard if I saved money for college that they will not get any financial aid. Is this true? Please suggest the best ways to save for their college education. Well, simply, that's just not true. It's actually a pretty widespread myth that there is a penalty for saving money for your child's college education, that college savings plans are available only for uh, wealthy families or that a family will qualify for more need-based aid if they don't save for college. That's a myth. And I actually did some research for you on this particular uh, misnomer. And if you go to finaid.org, which is a fantastic resource, a great college savings resource, it says that the federal need analysis methodology does count a portion of the family's assets in determining their financial need for college. So, you know, with that, you would assume that a family with more assets will get less need-based aid. However, the federal government does not count all of those assets, just a fraction of them. So a family that saves for college will have more money left over than a family that does not save for college. So they go on to say that money in a 529 college savings plan, which is a very traditional way to save for college. You're asking for some vehicles. This is a great one. I I have one for my son. It's a child's 529 college savings plan or any other qualified tuition plan that is treated as though it were a parent asset on the free application for federal student aid, the FAFSA. And that is given more favorable treatment than for child assets. So if your child had his or her own savings account, that would actually uh, work against you with in this regard more than you having your own savings account for your child, particularly a 529 college savings account. And that's because child assets are assessed at a 20% rate, while parent assets are assessed according to a bracketed scale uh, with the top bracket of 5.64%. So it's uh, much more favorable to for parents to save for their children. And the uh, this website goes on and gives some very specific examples. They say that for every $10,000 in a 529 college savings plan, Uh, your need-based aid eligibility might get reduced by up to $564. So what would you rather have? $10,000 in a college savings plan to forfeit 
around $600 worth of need-based aid or $0 in a college savings plan and fingers crossed some money from the government. I would rather take control of my ability to save and be proactive about it rather than save nothing and then cross my fingers that I'm going to get some sort of aid uh, that will, and by the way, it probably won't be sufficient. You know, a lot of families that save nothing, you know, the fact that you're going to get like a full uh, scholarship or that you're going to get all the aid that you possibly could want is not likely. It's better planning to really take this matter into your own hands. The more money you save, the more options you're going to have and the less you'll need to borrow. So I hope that answers your question. I hope that if you haven't yet, please start some sort of college savings account for your kids. And even if you're just saving $50 uh, a week or, you know, a couple hundred bucks a month, that will go a very long way and will allow you all as a family to be more uh, selective when it comes time to, you know, decide for school for, for your kids. Abigail, she writes and she says, hey, Farnoosh, I'm a new listener for about a week now. Absolutely love your podcast. I'm 27 and I was seduced into buying a timeshare this summer. Oh, gosh. She says, I owned it for less than a year. I realize now it wasn't right for me, yeah, and currently making all payments on time. Well, that's good. She says the information on the property is not being reported to the credit agencies. What options are available to me so that I can get rid of the timeshare and keep the shirt on my back? Google search reveals resale scams are aplenty. Do you have any recommendations for reputable timeshare reselling sources? A million thank yous in advance. Well, Abigail, I am not an, a timeshare expert. Uh, I do know enough to never buy one. I'm sorry that you got roped into this. Getting rid of a timeshare is not easy. So I'll just preface by saying that. And, and then I'm not, I guess you know this and you've realized this already. Now, for those of you on the podcast, including Abigail, who are annoyed, frustrated, uh, up to your ears in uh, frustration with your current timeshare, you want to get rid of it or do something else with it, a few options. Um, again, this is this is not an easy road. When selling a timeshare, I would say the first thing you want to do is contact the company that's managing the property. Sometimes that company will have a service, a legitimate service, that can help the timeshare owners uh, offload their timeshares, sell their timeshares. And the reality is, is that these companies don't work for free. They don't work for charity. They often charge a fee, a very big one. So just be aware of that. The other thing you might want to consider doing is, if you can, trading it in. So there's uh, there are timeshare developers that have internal exchanges for um, related properties, but you can use independent timeshare exchange networks. A couple of them I, I've, I've discovered. One is called RCI, rci.com. And then there's Interval International, and their website is intervalworld.com, which can help you uh, expand your search. So this is if you want to trade it in for a different location, a different timeshare in a different country or a different beach. Because uh, a lot of times what happens is we buy these timeshares, we live in you know, suburbia, and we buy a timeshare in Jamaica. And at the time, we're so excited. We're like, we're going to so go to Jamaica every single year, a few times a year, in fact. And then we don't. But if you can find one maybe in the States, you know, or uh, within driving distance from your home so that way you can get to it uh, more than once every three years, I think that that could be something 
where you know, you're not necessarily saving money, but you're at least making a better use of that timeshare idea. You know, you're getting something that's relatively close to you that you'll go, you'll frequent more often than not. Uh, another thing you can do is rent it out. So if you're not gonna be able to go, maybe somebody else can go and, and stay there and pay you money for it. And now there's a, an expanding number of websites that can connect you to travelers, whether it's Airbnb, VRBO, Home Exchange, HomeAway. Uh, the rental money that you get might be able to offset some of the financial burden that you're facing. And so that's another path. So that's what I've got to say about that. Again, I'm not a timeshare expert. I would say the first thing you wanna do is go and contact the management company and say, look, I want out. What options do you have for me? I'm sure they have some answers. And, uh, but be uh, prepared for fees that you might have to pay if you sell it through them. Victor writes and says, what's your advice for parents that are trying to figure out good work-life balance? I'm a new parent and it's challenging. Oh yes, Victor. Welcome to the club. <laughs> I am almost 10 months in as a new parent and I will be the first to tell you that there is no such thing as balance. Forget that word, get it out of your vocabulary. <laughs> but uh, you hear me, I'm still laughing, I'm still smiling, I, I'm still alive, so something's working for me. Um, I will say that I don't get a, a lot of sleep these days, but it's just kind of par for the course as a new parent. Uh, I will say this though, I have integrated some non-negotiables in my life since Evan has come into our lives. As a mom, I want to spend quality time with him and make sure that I'm getting quality time with my husband and that I'm getting and that I'm being good to myself. And so I, I have stricter rules now and parameters around what I'm willing to do and what I'm not, how I work and how I don't. So I actually wrote an article about this for dailyworth.com. If you go there and you type in my name, you might find the article. Basically, it's about how I've been managing my workflow as a new mom who tends to travel quite a bit for her job. And I recall Evan being only like two and a half or three months. And I went on like a five night, oh, I was away for five nights in a row. And um, it it was devastating. It was it was not hard on him. Babies don't hold grudges. That's one of my mantras these days that keeps me going. <laughs> you know, he's only 10 months, so it's not like I'm going to be I'm sending him to therapy over the lack of uh, nights that I'm here. Uh, but I did decide that it wasn't good for me. You know, I didn't want to be away for so many nights in a row ever again. And um, so now I have these non-negotiables, which goes like this. If a company or someone wants me to work for them, and do a project with them or give a speech or be present in another location that requires me to be away from my house for more than one night, then um, I either won't do it or they have to pay me a lot more money or I will find a way to arrange to bring Evan with me. So 24 hours is kind of my my deal breaker. After that, after 24 hours, I got to find some other way to make this make more sense for me because I have, you know, I've worked hard in my career. I feel like I've now come to a place where I can call some shots and I don't need to do everything for money. I can actually do some things because I want to. And, and so that's one thing that I have, I've, it's a rule that I've created. And I think that, um, this is just to say to you and other parents on the podcast that, you know, you want to create some rules of thumb for yourself that will give you a sense of sanity that creates some sort of method to the madness. My husband and I, we also recently decided that he would work, he would shift his hours. So what was happening, and it was really kind of making me miserable in the first few months, was that, uh, you know, we have this wonderful nanny. She comes from 8 a.m. till 4 p.m., um, 
But as we all know, it's really impossible to finish all your work between 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. I was very spoiled and before I had Evan and before I was a mom that I would just like work all the time and I wouldn't have to worry about, you know, working through the night. And now I can't do that. So I'm really, I have to get all my work done within a set parameter of time. Four o'clock wasn't doing it for me. I would sometimes just get started around two o'clock and I'd have conference calls at five or I'd have to go to a meeting at four. And I, you know, so how do I come back in time? My husband didn't get back until 637. So it was on me to be kind of full-time parent between four and seven. And so Tim, um, said, you know what, I will I will talk to work and I'll see if I can start earlier and then come home earlier. And they agreed, God bless them. And so that's been really helpful for us. So again, not to say that this is what you should do, but just to go show you what our process has been. We've realized, you know, you're not going to know everything when you become a parent. You're going to learn by trial and error and you're going to realize one day something's not working. You're not happy because of the fact that you haven't gotten sleep in the last two months and that you're, you're not getting work done. You always feel behind. So it's about communicating with your partner about how you can resolve and reconcile some of these issues. I actually made a list the other day of a few things that uh, would make my life easier or better. I asked this on my podcast a lot to my guests. I say, how do you spend your money to make your life easier or better? And so I said, okay, Farnoosh, what's going to make my life easier or better? Because it was it's stressful at times, you know, working and being a parent and everything else. And so I've literally made a list. And on that list, I, I said something like, I have a cleaning lady, right? She comes twice a month. I was like, I want her to come every single week. And then uh, another thing was like, I need to go to the gym at least three times a week. Like that, has, that can't be a negotiable. Um, and I shared this with my husband and then he made his own list. And so we go back and forth. And so this is what it takes, Victor. It's constant communication. It's constantly being in touch with yourself and being honest with yourself and saying, am I being good to myself? Am I being good to my family? Am I being good to my community? And if something is lacking and it's really bugging me, then I need to adjust. And so being flexible, being open-minded, being willing to kind of play it by ear sometimes is what it takes, but it's consciousness, it's communication, um, and and uh, and it's constant appreciation for what you do have because I know that there are a lot of parents that don't have the privilege like I do to work from home, that don't have the privilege of having a supportive partner, that don't have the privilege of having the income to be able to afford childcare. So I'm constantly reminding myself that I'm extremely grateful, I'm extremely lucky, and so that's what keeps me sane and appreciative and not so bogged down on the fact that, oh, I only got, you know, four and a half hours of sleep last night. It could be worse. So congratulations. Uh, and you're about to embark on an amazing, amazing journey. There's nothing like parenthood. Every day your heart just expands. It amplifies and you really surprise yourself in, in, in just how much love you have inside you. And it's an amazing, amazing thing. So I wish you all the best. And thank you so much for listening to the show. Morgan, this is going to be our last question for today. She says, I'm 24, single, living in beautiful Denver. Yeah, Denver is gorgeous. I've been there a couple of times. I don't know why I hadn't been there sooner. Anyway, she says, I've been saving every penny to go to law school in the fall of 2015. So far, I have $80,000 in savings. Way to go, Morgan. She said, I recently found out that I received a scholarship for law school. Woohoo! So tuition is only going to cost me 30 grand. 
That's amazing. She says, I don't want to keep all that money that I've saved, the 80000 sitting in the bank collecting minimal interest, but I'm not sure what to do with it. I'm a big fan of yours, and I would appreciate any advice you might have. Thanks, Farnoosh. Morgan, well, first of all, congratulations on a couple of things. One, saving a whopping 80 grand at your age at 24. How did you do this? Can you please share that with me? Like write in and I want to repeat that to my audience or maybe have you on as a guest because that is just stellar. And to top it, you've earned a fantastic scholarship that's going to make your law school tuition, which we know folks, people are spending six figures, upwards of six figures on their law school education. For you, it's going to come to just 30 grand and that is amazing. So you want to know what to do with the money that you have saved that you're not going to necessarily need now for tuition. Well, you are going to need $30,000 of that, right, for your tuition. So $30,000 you don't do anything with. You keep that in a nice, safe place and at the ready so that you can pay your tuition on time every quarter and that you keep that scholarship. Because as we know, a lot of scholarships are dependent on not only your grades, but your ability to pay your bill. And Because, well, this wasn't a full scholarship, so it's a... It's still requiring you to be in accordance with the school's rules and regulations. So make sure that you get that check out to your school uh, on time, every time. So that leaves you with $50,000, right? So I would say use some of that $50,000 as your rainy day reserve. And how you figure out how much of that to save is I would say take, let's say, your anticipated living expenses for the next nine months and uh, multi- and then put that away in, again, a liquid account. Not Don't worry about interest. Just keep it in a nice tucked away bank account that you can have access to. And then with whatever's left, and I hopefully there, at this point there's still some money left, I would open up an individual retirement account. And if you actually do this before April 15th, um, so you've got about a week, assuming that this money that you've saved came from earned income, you can take some of that money put it in an individual retirement account, and that contribution will actually lower your taxable income for 2014. So you actually save money on your taxes. Maybe you've already filed your taxes, but you can always do an amendment and um, and include that you contributed to your IRA, or you could just you know do it, count it, have it count towards 2015. But that could be something that has multi benefits. So one, you're saving for the long term and you're getting a little bit more interest than just putting it in a traditional savings account because with an IRA, you're basically investing in the stock market and other sorts of assets that are a little more aggressive than you know your brick and mortar bank account savings. And what you're also able to do effectively is lower your taxable income. And that's some money back in your pocket. Um, so I would do that. And again, if you do this before April 15th, which is only a week away, uh, you will be able to count that towards your 2014 tax return. Otherwise, you can count it towards your 2015 tax return. And so that's what I do. And by the way, the maximum contribution uh, that you can put in your IRA to have it be tax deductible is $5,500. So this is a way to get you know ahead of the curve. When you graduate from law school, you'll have already had a retirement account. But Morgan, way to go, high five, virtual high five. I'm so proud of you. Thanks for tuning in, putting a smile on my face. Nice way to end my weekend. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. As a reminder, if you'd like to have a 15-minute one-on-one with me, I have a method. 
uh, that helps you qualify for that. It is called leaving a review on iTunes. And so leave a review on iTunes. Every Saturday at the top of the show, I read off one review from that week, a new review, and that person receives a free 15-minute money session with me. So if you're interested in this, please, I encourage you to do that. Um, and I thank you in advance. And for future, if you'd like to ask me a question and have it answered on this show, just hop on to somoneypodcast.com, click on Ask Farnoosh, and ask away. Thanks again, everyone. Hope your day is so money. <laughs>